Chapter Three of the Rome Express. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by April Gonzalez. The Rome Express by Arthur Griffiths. Chapter Three. The questions put by Monsieur Flosson were much the same in every case, and were limited in this early stage of the inquiry to one point of identity. The first who entered was a Frenchman. He was a jovial, fat-faced, portly man, who answered to the name of Anatole Lafollay, and who described himself as a traveller in precious stones. The berth he had occupied was number thirteen in compartment F. His companion in the berth was a younger man, smaller, slighter, but much of the same stamp. His name was Jules Duval, and he was a commission agent. His berth had been number 15, in the same compartment, F. Both of his Frenchmen gave their addresses, with the names of many people, to whom they were well known, and established at once a reputation for respectability, which was greatly in their favour. The third to appear was a tall, grey-headed Englishman, who had taken a certain lead the first discovery of the crime. He called himself General Sir Charles Collingham, an officer of Her Majesty's Army, and the clergyman who shared the compartment with his brother, the Reverend Silas Collingham, rector of Thickstone Lamas, in the county of Norfolk. The births were numbered one and four in A. Before the English general was dismissed, he asked whether he was likely to be detained. For the present, yes, replied Monsieur Flozon briefly. He did not care to be asked questions. That, under the circumstances, was his business. Because I should like to communicate with the British Embassy. You are known there? asked the detective. Not choosing to believe the story at first. It might be a ruse of some sort. I know Lord Dufferin personally. I was with him in India. Also Colonel Papillon, the military attaché. We were in the same regiment. If I sent to the Embassy, the latter would, no doubt, come himself. How do you propose to send? That is for you to decide. All I wish is that it should be known that my brother and I are detained under suspicion, and incriminated. Hardly that, Monsieur le General, but it shall be as you wish. We will telephone from here to the post nearest to the embassy to inform His Excellency. Certainly, Lord Dufferin and my friend, Colonel Papillon. Of what has occurred, and now, if you will permit me to proceed. So the single occupant of the compartment B, that adjoining the Englishman was called in. He was an Italian, by name Natal Ripaldi, a dark-skinned man, with very black hair and a bristling black moustache. He wore a long dark cloak in the Inverness order, and, with a slash hat he carried in his hand, his downcast secretive look, he had a rather conventional aspect of a conspirator. If Monshaw permits, he volunteered to say after the formal questioning was over. I can throw some light on this catastrophe. And how so? Pray. Did you assist? Were you present? If so, why wait to speak till now? Said the detective, receiving the advance rather coldly. It behooved him to be very much on his guard. I have no opportunity till now for addressing anyone in authority. You are in authority, I presume? I am the chief of the detective service. Then, Monsieur, remember, please, that I can give some useful information when called upon. Now, indeed, 
if you receive it. Monsieur Floson was so anxious to approach the inquiry without prejudice that he put up his hand. We will wait, if you please. When Monsieur Le Judge arrive, then perhaps at any rate a later stage. That will do now, thank you. The Italian's lip curled with a slight indication of contempt by the French detective's methods, but he bowed without speaking and went out. The last of all, the lady appeared, in a long sealskin travelling cloak, and closely veiled. She answered Monsieur Flazon's question in a low, tremulous voice, as though greatly perturbed. She was the Contessa di Castagneto, she said, an Englishwoman by birth, but her husband had been an Italian, as her name implied. And they resided in Rome. He was dead. She had been a widow for two or three years, and was on her way now to London. That will do now, madam, thank you, said the detective politely. For the present, at least. Why, are we likely to be detained? I trust not. Her voice became appealing, almost piteous. Her hands, restlessly moving, showed how much she was distressed. Indeed, Madame la Comtesse, it must be so. I read it infinitely, but until we have gone further into this, I have solicited some facts, arrived at some conclusions. But there, Madame... I need not, must not say more. Oh, Monsieur, I was so anxious to continue my journey. Friends are awaiting me in London. I do hope, I must earnestly beg and entreat you to spare me. I am not very strong. My health is indifferent. Do, sir, be so good as to release me from... As she spoke, she raised her veil, and showed what no woman wishes to hide. Least of all when seeking the goodwill of one of the opposite sex. He had a handsome face, strikingly so, not even the long journey to fatigue the worries and anxieties which had supervened corrupt her of her marvellous beauty. She was a brilliant brunette, dark-skinned, but her complexion was of a clear pale olive and as soft as lustrous of pure ivory. Her grey eyes of a deep velvety brown were saddened by the near tears. She had rich red lips and only colour in her face and this habitually slighted apart, showed a pearly white glistening teeth. It was difficult to look at this charming woman without being affected by beauty. Monsieur Flosson was a Frenchman, gallant and impressionable, yet he still his art. A detective must be worth a sentiment, and he seemed to see something insidious of this appeal, which he resented. Madame, it is useless, he answered gruffly. I do not make the law. I have only to support it. Every good citizen is bound to that. I should say I'm a good citizen, said the Countess, with a wan smile, but very wearily. Still, I should wish you be let off now. I have suffered greatly, terribly, by this horrible catastrophe. My nerves are quite shattered. It is too cruel. However, I can say no more, except to ask that you will let my mate come to me. Monsieur Flazon, Still obdurate, we not even consent to that. I fear, madam, that for the present at least you cannot be allowed to communicate with anyone, not even your maid. But she's not implicated. She was not in the car. I've not seen her since. Since, repeated Monsieur Flozon, after a pause. Since last night, Madame Berieu. About eight o'clock, she helped me to undress and saw me to bed. I sent her away then and said I should not need her till we reach Paris. But I want her now. Indeed, I do. 
She did not come to you at La Roche? No. Have I not said so? The porter. Here she pointed to the man, who stood staring at her from the other side of the table. He made difficulties about her being in the car, saying that she came too often, stayed too long, they must pay for her birth, and so on. I did not see why I should do that, so she stayed away. Except from time to time. Precisely. And the last time was at Amberieu. As I have told you, and I will tell you the same. Thank you, madam, that will do. The chief rose from his chair, plainly intimating that the interview was at an end. End of chapter 3 Recording by April Gonzalez in Cavita, Philippines